I invite you to turn to our scripture passage for today. It's Exodus 19, verses 10 to 25. It's Exodus 19, 10 to 25. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourselves warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, as we just sung, speak to us, Father. We pray uh, that as we have come to your holy mountain in worship, that we would hear your voice and we would be awed by your majesty. In your glory, we would get a taste of. We pray that your word, as we hear it preached, would make us new and build us up in Christ. We need you to work, Father. We pray that you would. In Christ's name, amen. So two Saturdays ago, I set out to climb Twin Peaks with Jake and David from our church. And Uh, which is right, you can see today, the mountain basically right behind us. And the trail starts at the bottom of the S-curve going up Big Cottonwood Canyon. And from the trailhead, it's about five miles up to the peak and about 5,000 feet in elevation gain. So that's a good bit of climbing, but it's not undoable. But what made this trail particularly hard, as any one of us would attest, is that after, you know, about two miles from the summit, the trail disappeared just into big boulder fields, and you kind of had to figure out the best way to scramble up all these boulders and shards of rock to get to the top. And the closer we got to the summit, the slower we started moving. Uh, But as I crested the summit, 
and the rest of the world just dropped thousands of feet below me, my heart raced with excitement, not just from climbing up, but because of the vastness and the beauty of it all. You've probably sensed something similar when you've climbed a mountain. And as I stepped across those deep piles of fractured rock that clink like porcelain, I wonder, how did all this get way up here? And as I scanned just the miles of rock and cliff and trees and this valley down below, my heart was stuffed with the wonder of this world that we get to live in. Every one of us longs for these feelings of transcendence. It's something that lifts us above an ordinary experience. We find it in holding a newborn child, in your first kiss, and in climbing a mountain. We want something that stuffs our heart and takes our mind off the present pain and apathy of life and lifts us up and lets us taste, if even just for a moment, something so much bigger and more beautiful than what we're used to. Well, after a bit, we headed back down the mountain, and I'm notoriously bad at estimating how long a hike or bike ride will take. Just ask Lisa. She's totally used to me calling from the trailhead saying, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be home by now, but it took a little longer than I expected. And we talked about how long this trail would take, and Jake, who is way more realistic than me, said, oh, nine hours seems to be what most people do. I thought, oh, we could do it in six, I'm sure. Well, as us three mid to late 30s guys hobbled back to the car uh, with our lips crusted in salt and backs kind of aching, knees sore, legs like jello, we collapsed into our seats, and it never felt better. I checked with the timer on my watch, nine hours, 24 minutes. That mountain had broken us. You know, we all live in this tension between wanting something bigger than us, to climb this massive peak, something that lets us feel the divine, takes us out of ourselves, and yet we cannot get close to those big and awesome things without us getting a sense of how small we are. Mountains fill our hearts, but they also humble us. So often the big things, they break us. We long for the big things in life, and yet we cannot handle them. And it's the same with God. Part of us wants a big God who's full of power and glory, right? who can beat anyone in arm wrestling, who lifts our hearts more than any mountain peak can. But we cannot get close to that God without him breaking us, us realizing how far we fall short of his beauty and perfection. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. The big things break us. The big things break us. We're going to look at it just under two points. First, the descending, and then the cleansing. So first, the descending. We're in a, the second part of our series through Exodus. We're looking at the gift of the law. God is about to give a, a picture of what his kingdom looks like for his people. And so God gives Moses instructions for, to, to be able to receive the law. They are to consecrate themselves so that they can meet their God. This is the first time that Israel is going to meet the God who redeemed them. Up until now, they've seen plenty of examples of God's power, but they haven't known God personally. They haven't heard his voice. They haven't seen him. Every time, it was always Moses telling them, well, this is what God told me, kind of like a game of telephone. And for the first several months of my relationship with Lisa, many of you know this, we'd never met in person. 
I was deployed in Iraq initially and then went back to Hawaii. She was living in Santa Monica, California. And for months, this is how our relationship went on until one evening, I'll never forget, I walked into the LAX baggage claim and there was this girl that I'd only known through satellite phone calls and pixelated Skype calls. And then we met in person. And my heart was filled with nervousness and excitement. In Israel, their hearts are filled with nervousness and excitement as they are about to meet this God they've only known from a distance. And so they come to Mount Sinai, this place where God is going to meet them. And yet I want you to notice that this is not God's home. The top of the mountain is not where God lives and he's just been waiting for them to come to him. No, notice what it says, verse 11. God says he will come down upon Mount Sinai. Then on the third day, verse 18, the mountain was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Then again, verse 20, the Lord descended on top of the Mount of Sinai. We have this repetition and contrast in our passage that the top of Mount Sinai, which is a descent for God, is a big ascent for Moses. God isn't making Moses come up to where he lives. That would be impossible. There ain't no mountain high enough. The only way the people can meet God is if he descends down to them. But he can't go all the way down. It would be bad for the Israelites' health, as we see in all those warnings. There needs to be some separation, so a mountain works pretty well. God can descend partway, the people can see him, but they're still watch at a safe distance. God is showing that the only way you'll find him is if he comes down to our level, if he comes down to reveal himself to us. You could spend seven lifetimes climbing up and still be infinitely far from this God. He has to come down to where we are. Now, it's hard not to worship when you're on top of a mountain. You can be an atheist and still worship. The wonder of that mountain will lead you to worship. A sense of transcendence. Look at this. This is incredible. When we were scrambling up all those boulders near the top of Twin Peaks, and, and just the size of them and the force of them, it, it was like the very bones of the earth had fractured and broken out of the skin of our world, creating these jagged peaks that jut up 7,000 feet above where we are now. And I couldn't help but be filled with wonder. Like, how did these massive boulders splinter into thousands of jagged pieces up here into this harsh environment? And what force would this take? And it leads to worship. And God here, as they have gathered around this mountain, is showing people, you think this mountain is grand? Guess what? It's my footstool. Wait till you see my throne. The mountaintop, which tore your body up just to get up here, I had to descend to get down to it. Do you realize how big I am? And as God descends, we have this language like in verse 16. There was Thunder and lightning, a thick cloud came over the mountain and a trumpet blast. In verse 18, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Whenever we hear that language, it should make us think of several other passages in Scripture, specifically when temples are dedicated. Second Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying 
fire flashed down from heaven and burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glorious presence of the Lord that filled it. God is turning this mountain into a temple. The Israelites grew up in a world, we've talked about this, where there were many different gods. You could kind of pick and choose what gods would be good for your own goals in life, what gods would be helpful for the needs that you had. Gods would often be contained or at least represented in little idols that you could put in your home or religious trinkets that you could carry with you. Before the ring doorbell that you used to kind of secure your home, you would instead go and buy an idol that you might put near your door, that you would trust it to protect you from bad things. And ultimately, though, gods were seen as things that in the end served you. You did things to please them, and they would give you their services of protection or wealth or health or whatever it might be. They could be fashioned out of wood. You could overlay them with gold. You could carry them around. And God is showing something here, though, that's very different. He's breaking Israel's categories for how they've understood gods. He is a god that can't be fit in an idol. He's a God that can't even be fit in a mountain. He can't set on your mantle for good luck. And in fact, if you get too close to him, it will be bad for your health, as we see in all these warnings. Now, the idea of idols sounds foreign to us, and yet, while the form of idols has shifted, we still worship idols all the time. One way to think about it is this. The God that you say you worship Has that God ever confronted you or challenged you, forced you to change things in your life, convicted you about things? Or is the God you worship a God that you just kind of fit into the easy places of your life? Has God changed your schedule? Or have you just fit God into your existing schedule? Has God changed how you use your money? Or does how you use your money look like pretty much everyone else and anything you have left over you just give to him? Has God changed your priorities in life, in your family, in your work? Or have you set God on the mantle of your house to help you achieve, you know, kind of like a good luck charm, to help you achieve your own goals for your life and work and family? See, if, if the God, whatever it is that you've been worshiping, has not upended the core of your life, you're worshiping an idol, not the God of Sinai. And human nature always has this tendency, we want to bring God down to our level. We want to package God in, in manageable bites or into a, an idol or a mountain that we can walk up without it cramping our legs too much. We try to take a little bit of smoke from the mountain, put it in a bottle, and then take it back so that we can pull it out when we need it in our life. But you know that you're worshiping the God of Sinai when he has set the terms and conditions for your life. Has God set the agenda in your life? Does what you long for look different than what others long for because of how God's changed you? Or has you just brought God in as a coach to kind of help you further your own agenda? Is he supreme in everything you do? No boundaries, no parts of your life that are off limits to his direction. One of the ways we turn God into an idol is when we pick and choose the parts of his word that we want to accept. What do you do with the parts of the Bible that offend you, or that are hard to swallow, the parts of his word that rub against you? Do you cut them out? Do you explain them away? Say, well, I don't believe in that type of God. 
When you do that, you're not worshiping the God of Sinai that cannot be contained. You're cutting off parts of God and fashioning it in to an idol that follows your own heart's desires. Again, has God changed how you spend your time, your priorities, your money, your life? Another way to ask yourself if you're worshiping the God of Sinai or an idol is, where has God in his word convicted you lately? Where has his word challenged you lately? Where has it shown that you are falling short and you need to be convicted of sin and repent and live in faith? If whenever you read God's word, all you ever think about is how others really need to hear this or how this condemns that group of people, you're not worshiping the God of Sinai, but a God that fits in your pocket and happens to look a lot like you. Because the God of Sinai will break every single one of us. Because none of us can stand before him. We see it in our passage. No one was able to get close to God without changing something about their life. At a minimum, they had to be consecrated. We are all sinners. And a pocket God who doesn't offend you is easily ignored if you don't like what it says. Right? You just put some tape over his mouth and stuff him in your backpack so you don't hear him nagging anymore. A God like that might be convenient, but it's a God that is incapable of transforming your life because it'll never challenge you. And this is a paradox every one of us we live in. We long for that feeling of transcendence. We want the mountaintop. We want our hearts filled with something glorious and awesome. But we can't get close to a God who is like that without realizing how little we are. The big things break us. They show us how far we fall short. We realize we can't get close to that God. And so one of our human tendencies is, instead of following the God, the source of God, His glory, who He is, we start worshiping reflections of that God. False glory, thinking, well, maybe this will be enough. We worship the sun instead of the one who made the sun. We worship the mountain instead of the one who uses the mountains as his footstool. We take reflections of God's glory throughout creation and others, and we try to bottle them up and use them for our own use and our own convenience. Eugene Peterson wrote, classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. Religious meaning, apart from God, is revealed in the cross of Jesus through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, and through the ecstasy of crowds. These things, though, are not the source of glory. They are reflections, they're often malformed reflections of things that God created to reflect his glory into the world, his transcendence. But instead of enjoying them within God's framework, God's rules, we smuggle those reflections of glory into our own house to try to use them however we want, to try to mimic what that feeling that we're longing for of something bigger than us. But you cannot get warm from the reflection of a fire. No matter how much you hug the mirror, it won't work. And so many of us are trying to warm our souls by hugging reflections of God's glory because we don't want to be confronted by the God of Sinai. But it's no wonder we're never satisfied. And that's the tension every one of us lives in. We long to stand on top of Everest 
and yet we know getting there will probably kill us. And so this leads to our second point, the cleansing. In order for Israel to experience God, they've got to consecrate themselves. And this primarily involved washing their clothes, which back then didn't happen very often. And given Israel's big backpacking trip through the desert and lack of water, probably was unfrequent by even ancient standards. And they're also to abstain from sexual relations, not because sex is somehow dirty. It is not. It was created by God. But it was a way to remind them of the seriousness of what was about to happen. And then on the morning of the third day, Moses leads all the people out of the camp to the foot of the mountain to meet their God. And there's this relationship we see in the text between the people's consecration and how close they can get to God. Now, consecration means to be made holy. It means to be made acceptable, to come close to God. The root of some of the words here means belonging to God, or literally, God-like. I think that's a helpful way to think of it. The more God-like one is, the more or closer he or she can get to God. So to consecrate something means you're shaving off, you're washing off, you're removing all the things that are not like God so that that item or that person is more reflective of who God is and thus able to get closer to where God is. And so the people's consecration allows them to get closer than they were before they were consecrated. They are more godlike. They've at least washed their clothes, but they still can't climb on top of the mountain. They can only come to the base of the mountain. And why? Well, because God's glory is like a purifying fire. And if you get too close to it, it will start to burn up any impurities. And thus the people need to be clean. You can only get close to God unless you're clean. And clean clothes only go so far. God really wants clean hearts. But this is one of the ways that we make a God that we can fit into our pocket. You think, oh, God's satisfied with my clean clothes. Now, we don't take that literally today, but what so many of us do is we think of God as a checklist. If I can just do this and this and this and this, God will let me be close to him. He'll like me. If I can have a nice and tidy life, God will accept me. If I'm a good person and I do nice things, treat others well, that'll be good enough. I can come to God. As many before have said, if I don't drink or smoke or grow with girls who do, then God will be happy with me. These people did an outward cleansing. Things that people could observe, but it only got them to the base of the mountain. If you're treating Christianity just like a, a things of the list of do's and don'ts, and think that's enough, you're not following the God of Sinai, but a God whose standards are low enough to be happy with that. And consider Moses. He was the one that gets closest to God, and yet even he only gets to experience God after he descended from on high. Moses even gets a toned-down version of God. Because the big things break even the best of us. Outward things, cleansings, washings, they don't clean your heart. And the bigger the God, the deeper he sees into your heart. The more holy he is, your best things in life start to look more stained compared to his perfection. Without a thought life, desires, affections, and even instincts that mirror the purity of God, his presence will break you. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. 
You do not desire a sacrifice or to offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. It, David here is writing of how so many religious people work. Oh, if I just do these things, God will be happy with me. But here David says, God, you don't care about that stuff unless the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. What if the thing that you and I most fear the grandness and glory of God breaking us is actually the thing that we most need. What if in all of our efforts to create a God that we can kind of manage, who doesn't make us feel too bad, and dislikes the people that we don't like, is actually keeping us from what we long for, to be made new from the deepest part of our hearts? And what if all of your efforts to deal with sin, and we deal with it all kinds of ways, you punish yourself, you refuse to forgive yourself, you subject yourself to ever-harshening routines, you continually tell yourself how much you screwed up, how bad of a sinner I am, that you think, oh, look how good I am because of how much I hate myself and my sin. What if that isn't godliness, but a way, in twisted way, in which you're actually fitting God into your own pocket? I'll manage my repentance so God doesn't have to. But if you're never fully broken to the point that you don't even trust your own managing of repentance where you're on your knees and say, there is nothing that I can do, you haven't submitted to this God who fills the mountain. Francis Schaeffer wrote, since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves. Actually, we do everything we can, whether in a philosophic or practical sense, to put ourselves at the center of the universe. Don't you do that? Don't I do that? In all of your thought life, how you're thinking, how you're treating others, and how you compare yourself, we are always at the center. And what Christianity is, is a call to die to yourself. And you always being at the center. And every one of you, and me as much as you, we have a darkness in our hearts, a sin we will not let go, a list of thoughts we don't want anyone to know, and we are trying so hard every day to hide it. Because if people knew what actually happens in here, no one would want me. And we hate ourselves so often because of it. But maybe you've also had that sinking feeling that unless I confront that deep darkness, I will never be free. Unless you let the bigness of God break you, you'll always be in this living hell of knowing what happens in here and trying so hard to hide it from everybody else, including yourself. What if being broken is the first step to freedom? Instead, what we so often do is you try to do a whole bunch of good things that you can show yourself and others, well, look at all this stuff and distract you from what's in here. Or you just drown the feelings of what's in here through drugs or too much alcohol. This is why we need this passage, friends, because as Christians living on this side of Jesus, we have a greater perspective than what those Israelites did, that the God who shakes the mountain is, does not break us to destroy us, but because he wants to heal us. Hebrews 12, verse 18. 
You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did on Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. That was their experience. But that is not the mountain that we as Christians have come to. Pick it up in verse 22 of Hebrews 12. No, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have been now made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. See what he's saying here? He's saying, you have come not to the shadow of the mountain, but to the mountain where God actually dwells. But guess what? You don't come trembling like the Israelites do, say, when will this be over? But you come as part of a symphony of praise at the glory of God. And God calls you into his presence, to his holy mountain, not to end you, but to break what is broken in you and to make you new through the blood and the life of Jesus. Every single one of us, we stand in this tension. You have this darkness in your heart and a propensity to do the worst things, and we hate it. But you're so afraid to let any light into it because of what it would mean, and so you'd go through life trying to manage it. How are you going to live the rest of your life? Managing it, a God that you can manage, a God you can fit into your pocket, but who will never shine his light into the deepest and darkest parts of you, and therefore will never transform you? Or... Will today be the day where you worship the God who is so big that he brings you to your knees, he flays open your heart, but he picks up all of those pieces so that he can remake you into something beautiful from the inside out? One of the hardest things in life is to be truly vulnerable. We're good at managing even our own confessions. But there is no one to be safer, there's no one safer to be vulnerable with than with Jesus. Because he took the step to become vulnerable to you by saying, your sin won't break you, it'll break me. Your sin won't take your blood, it'll take mine. Friends, Jesus offers to take what is the worst of you and suck it into his life and to take it down into the grave so it will never return. And only then can you be transformed. We're intrigued by that mountain of God. We see it, it scares us, and yet there's something that makes us wonder that maybe if what at the top of this mountain is what I most need in my life. But the cost to take that step is so high. It, it doesn't take money, it's not work, it's not checklist, it's not trying harder, it, it is something way harder. It's the laying down of your very ego, yourself, and placing your whole life in the hands of God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit to let him break us, but then also remake us 
Let's pray. Father, help us. We need your help so badly. I need your help. Because the sin that is in my heart and the hearts of everyone here runs so deep and we are often blinded even to how deep it is. We don't know ourselves. And yet, there isn't a day that goes by where we have a sinking feeling that things aren't all right. Father, we pray that you would humble every one of us here to say, I give my life into your hands, Father. And to trust, as scary as that is, and as deep as you will go, that is the only way to the new life we long for. We pray that you would do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.